And this morning, the scripture comes from James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your word and how available it is to us. We thank you that it teaches us, that it um, pierces our hearts, and that it is living and active. We prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your word today to hear from you, and just to abide deeply rooted in your grace, in your strength, and in your peace. Will you speak through Ryan uh, today and give him your words as he, um, as he preaches. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to be kicking off this series through the book of James for probably about the next three months. Uh, we want to take our time through it and just kind of squeeze all the life out of it that God has for us there. Um, and it, so, you know, the book of James is, is punchy to say the least, and it's, it's full of wisdom. Like, it won't take you very long in the book of James to be convicted, you know? Like, the greeting is, like, pretty, pretty trite, pretty short, and then he just gets right into it. And, um, you know, its, it's, uh, it's author is, is James, and uh, there's a lot of different Jameses in the Bible, but this one is uh, believed to be the younger brother of Jesus, or as uh, known in church history as James the Just. And uh, the interesting thing about James the Just, the younger brother of Jesus, is that uh, James did not believe in Jesus for a long time. Uh, you know, and I, as I think about this, it gives me hope because, you know, when you, when you think about your own family and people that you're close to and you try to walk out this Christian faith with them, you're not Jesus, obviously, uh, or at least I'm not, uh, and, and you, you try to walk this faith out uh, and it seems to have no effect on the others around you, no matter how hard you pray and how hard you try. I think it gives us a little bit of hope in that regard. Listen to what John chapter 7, verse 5 says. Not even his brothers believed in him. So these guys walked and lived and talked with Jesus for nearly 30 years. And uh, they saw integrity and love in action for nearly 30 years and didn't believe. Not one of his brothers believed in him before he was crucified. Can you imagine how lonely of a death that would have been for Jesus? To know that the people that you love the deepest in this world, the people you grew up with, didn't really believe in your mission, what, what God had called you to do. But there's something that happens in the story of James' life and his brothers. Acts 1.14 records a portion of this. Here's what it says. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. This is just right before Pentecost. And together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So, so something happens in that 50 or so days from Jesus' death and resurrection to his ascension and the Holy Spirit's coming at Pentecost that ultimately changes James' life forever, that wakes him from the dead. You know, so what you see is you see a few predominant characters in the book of Acts. James is one of those. Paul goes out and Paul is preaching the gospel all over the world. He leaves Jerusalem and goes all over the world. Peter stays in Jerusalem and preaches the gospel to the, the Jews that are there. And James kind of takes the torch from Peter when Peter dies. He, he takes the torch and he carries it on into Jerusalem. 
But you understand that it doesn't take you long to understand if you read letters from Paul like Philippians and Ephesians and uh, Thessalonians and all the other ones that, that Paul's written, and you read the book of James, it seems like sometimes that they contradict each other. That, that grace looks differently. Paul talks a lot about justification by faith alone. And the book of James only mentions Jesus' name twice. Uh, there's a lot of people that don't care for the book of James because it doesn't speak of the, the, the work of Jesus. It talks a lot about the gospel behaviors that Jesus, uh, a life in Jesus requires. But, but I want to challenge us this morning as we dig into this book not to overlook what, the, uh, what God has for us in the book of James. James was writing to, to Jewish uh, believers in Jerusalem who held the law very highly. A lot of Gentiles were tempted not to hold the law very highly. And so he, he's drawing out the dignity of what the gospel of Jesus and his grace empowers us to live it out. And he, he does that over and over and over again through his letter. Now, you know, we're not sure what finally happened to cause James to begin following Jesus and to, to go into ministry and to be the pastor of the church in Jerusalem for nearly 30 years. But we know that it was dramatic and that the Holy Spirit woke his heart up from the dead and, and enabled him to see that his younger brother's work was for him. But, but what, what church history has told us about James uh, is this, is that uh, about 30 years after he began you know, pastoring the church, uh, the, the Pharisees and the scribes began to be very frustrated with him just like they were with Jesus, because he was probably preaching this grace, you know, by faith alone, through grace alone, that, that frustrates the legalist in all of us, right? And, and what, what church history has said to have happened to James is that he was taken up to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem and thrown off of it. But he didn't die when he hit the ground. No, he was still alive, and so they came and they clubbed him to death, and it's said that it, they buried him on the spot. So I think it's fitting that James begins his letter in a very impactful way, talking about trials, talking about suffering, talking about something that's so familiar to each of us, pain. The big idea of where we're going today is this. Suffering is how Jesus gives us the most valuable thing in the world, a complete faith. Suffering is how Jesus gives us the most valuable thing in the world, a complete faith. Now, many of us are familiar with, with suffering, with trials, with struggle, with temptation, with testing. We're, we're familiar with it, and it comes seasonal in our lives. And when we're in the middle of those seasons, we are tempted to think that the biggest problem in our life is that circumstance that we're in. But what James shows us about Jesus' work in our lives is that the most important thing about us is not the trial or the suffering that we're going through. It's our estrangement with God. Now, as we delve into this text today, what we're going to see is that God's way of completing our faith and perfecting us in his image is much differently than what we choose for ourselves. But it's the only way to be holy as he's holy. So let's dig in together. First point is this, uh, as, we, as we dive through this text, God sees us. We are imperfect and incomplete and in need of transformation. The way that I want to tackle this text is to start with the end in mind, verse 4 in order to get to the second verse, which talks about joy. Because if we start with joy without talking about the problem and then the solution, it will make no sense to us. So we're going to start backwards here. James 1.4, the second part of that verse is this. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking 
in nothing, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he, he, he begins to share this desire that God has for us, that we'd be perfect, that we'd be complete. Now, it doesn't take very long for us to realize in life that we are incomplete, that we are imperfect. And, and what I want you to know today is that Jesus knows that about you, and you're exactly where he wants you to be right now in life. He's sovereign over your circumstances. His desires are much higher than yours are for your life, and he's going to get you there through the power of his spirit. You know, I've had a, a strange week myself. Some of you have these types of weeks as well. The best way to describe it is kind of like melancholy, I guess, you know. It's, uh, it's, it's one of those where you're kind of like semi-depressed, semi-frustrated, feeling immature, um, just just not much joy in my life. That was, that was this week for me. And I trying to pinpoint it with Megan this week. You couldn't really pinpoint it. A couple things that kind of set me off and irritated me. Anyway, and when I have these kinds of weeks, what I like to do is just hide in the house and not get around anyway so I don't sin against them, right? I don't know how you handle those things, but I've got these strategies for when I get in these places that are troubling for me because my sin is on display. Maybe you know that feeling like you're not enough for your family, like you're not enough for your boss. Your joy is just kind of vanquished and you're just kind of living. You know, the kind of week where you want to escape on a vacation, but you know better because when you get on that vacation, you'll still be stuck with you, right? You know what I'm talking about? But those kind of weeks is the ones that James wants to encourage us in here. The weeks where we feel incomplete and unfinished as image bearers of God. Maybe you're feeling that this week. And uh, Jesus has something for you. It, you're probably not going to like it, um, <laughs> but you need it. And, and, and it's this. Um, the only way that you and I can change is through suffering. The only way that God can complete his unfinished work in us and change us into the perfect image of Jesus Christ is through trial and through suffering. There is no other way. Your Christian faith whether you know it or not, was made for suffering. It was built for it. And yet so few of us willingly embrace it when God shows it to us. It's not because Christians like pain, but because Jesus is so real and so acquainted with sorrow and suffering, as the prophet Isaiah says, that we experience a part of him that we never, ever, ever get to experience apart from sharing with him in those sufferings that he has for us. Here's Jesus' commitment to you no matter what as a Christian, okay? It comes from Philippians 1.6. You can take this promise to the bank. It's this. Now, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he began that good work in you with his grace, brought you to himself, you've been converted, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That, that the completion that he intends to bring in our life will be somewhat gradual, but it will be full and final at one point when he comes to judge the world and all things and we'll go to be with him forever. So he begins this work and he will complete this work and he will build on this work through our lives. Now we, we won't get to de- decide how he builds on that work. That'd be great, right? That would be great if we, could, if we could do that. But here's what I want you to know about this. Is that in Christ we're free to be incomplete. We're free to be insufficient. We're free to be weak. In fact, addressing that, realizing that, confessing that, 
is the only way that you will ever change. It's the only way. Secondly, the scriptures lead us to this, that God completes us. So, so we're in need, we're, we're incomplete, we're lacking, we feel that, we feel it some weeks more strongly than others, and we're tempted to turn to something or someone to give us that sense of fulfillment, to give that sense of completion, that sense of lack that we have, we want it fulfilled in our lives. But God says this, God completes us, because suffering is the way that Jesus changes us. You know, we, we um, here's how we would like to change, or at least me, um, I, I would like to, you know, in, in a college class, if you've been to college, there's a lot of times there's like a lecture and then there's like a, a lab, right? A lecture and a lab. Here, here's how I like to change. I like to change in the lecture. Okay, I didn't know that. Learn something new today. I'm going to put it into play. Unfortunately, that's not how we change. We change in the lab of life, not the lecture of life. The lecture just informs us how to behave and how to respond when we're in the lab. Now, today will serve for you as a, as a lecture so that you're ready in the lab. Now, some of you are in the lab right now, and you're, you're taking notes, you're ready for this. You, you, you need to be reminded of this, that God is with you in the middle of this, that he has fashioned these circumstances for your life because he loves you so much that he wants to change you. We need to rem- be reminded that it's not the lecture that changes us. It's the lecture applied in the lab that changes us, the laboratory of life. So we, ha- we have kids, uh, like some of you, we have four of them, and... Uh, you know, no, none of them are twins. They always ask us that. Yeah, we did this on purpose, kind of. And so, uh, you yeah, know, we've got, we've got, they're all like five years apart. It's great. Um, and uh, uh, they, they've all got these like terrible ear infections throughout the years. Some people probably are getting them now. And, you know, it's, it's just ridiculous, right? Because you see, you see it coming. You're like, okay, I, I, I don't even need to call the doctor. Just give me an antibiotic, right? I know what this kid needs. Like, they got an ear infection, let's get those antibiotics going so they'll get well. So here's the deal, you go to, uh, you know, Kroger or Walgreens or wherever, and you pick up your antibiotic, right, and you take it home to the kid. And, um, and they want to get better, they're feeling bad, they're not sleeping, nobody's sleeping. And, uh, and you begin to inject the antibiotic into their mouth, and it's met with utter disruption, right? I mean, it, it hits the mouth, it's pink, right, because that's helpful. And then it just goes straight out of their mouth all over you and your white carpet. And it's still there to this day, right? And so you get smart as a parent, and you begin to try some alternative methods to help the child, you know, consume the medicine that's going to make them better because they want to be made better, but they don't like the medicine. And so, you know, um, so you do alternate things like you take it to Publix and they flavor it for you for just a, a little bit more, right? Oh, let's, flavor, let's try that. Maybe they'll like that. Or, oh, no, they don't like the flavoring either. Let's sneak it inside of some food and feed it to them, right? That's a good idea. Or my... My personal favorite, I only did this one once, was um, <laughs> you, you hold their nose, you put the medicine in, you blow in their face, and, <gasps> and then they, they <laughs> I, I just felt wrong, I haven't done that since, but, um, <laughs> you know, the point is this, though, that, that they, they, they want to be, uh, some of you are like, all right, that, that police officer out there is not for me, I promise that, but, so, you know what it's like, I mean, the kid wants to be made better, you want the kid better, but they don't want the medicine that makes them better. This is exactly what we do when we think about suffering and trial. We think that somehow we are going to escape the normal means of God's grace into changing us in the image of Jesus Christ. That we're somehow going to come out unscathed from all this. That we're somehow not going to go through a devastating season of life with a devastating diagnosis, with a devastating loss of someone that we love that died way too young, with a devastating 
extended season of unemployment, a place where everything looks utterly hopeless in our lives. We think that that's not going to hit us, and we're wrong. Because God loves us so much to give us what we need. We're changed through suffering. We're changed through trial. We just want him to change us on our terms, and he loves us too much to let us do that. Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Pa- Paul talks about the nature of how suffering uh, invites you into something um, that is deep and beautiful that nothing else in this world can. Here's what he says. Uh, that I may know him, know Jesus. And that word for know is this, this word that is, describes an intimate relationship. That I may know Jesus intimately. Like that we may be close to each other. That we, he may know me completely and thoroughly. Nothing's hidden from him. He says, that's the goal, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The, the power that's overcome sin in this world that reminds us that what we see and what we experience is not all there is. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Becoming like him, oh, the main part here, that I may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death, and by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So for Paul to know Jesus intimately the way that you and I want to know Jesus, it was to share in his sufferings. That, that word for, for share is the same word that we get for fellowship, koinonia. That, that he may have this koinonia fellowship, this deep fellowship with Jesus in suffering. So not just when, when the band plays that favorite song and the hands just go up and you're in the moment, you know, you're just worshiping the Lord, but in the pit of suffering is where Paul saw himself sharing the deepest fellowship with Jesus. Because it was there that he knew Jesus more and knew what Jesus endured, what Jesus went through. But James, dare I say, takes it a, a level deeper. He, 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 James talks about in James 1 what that season of suffering and fellowship with Jesus is after in you. And that's what I want to talk about, because we'll miss it if not. It's this... Uh, it's this word, steadfastness. It's not a word we use often. Listen to how it's described in, in the James 1, 3, and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So steadfastness is what we're after. But James warns us that we have a tendency to short-circuit those testing seasons by not allowing them to produce the full effect of what God has in in mind for us. We tend to hit the eject button when we've had enough. And we move on to some other set of circumstances that we think we'll find joy in. And, um, And it's in those moments where we fail to worship Jesus in the pain. And those are the moments that grow us the deepest as image bearers of God. I've been walking uh, even this week with a couple of friends that have been um, suffering in different ways. And, and, and the interesting thing about it is that the suffering and the trial in their life has shown me something about them that I did not know about them before. It's revealed something. And, and suffering does that in all of us, doesn't it? I've, I've told you guys about the season when uh, when, uh, when, when Megan was diagnosed with MS, and, and I, the, the phrase that I used was, you know, uh, she can't put down her Bible, I can't pick mine up. Caught me off guard. Caught me off guard. She was ready, caught me off guard. 
The Lord drew us into that. But these two friends this week, I'll tell you briefly about them. So I was connecting with a friend this week. He's, uh, he's not yet a Christian, and he began to share some uh, tragic news about one of his grandchildren that had an incurable uh, disorder that would likely cut this child's life short. And, um, you know, I could tell that there was pain in his eyes. He's a, he's a tough New Englander, you know, the kind, just tough as nails. They don't make him like this guy anymore. And, um, and, and I, as I... As I saw the pain in his eyes, they were just telling a story. Um, I've never seen a weak bone in this guy's body. Um, old, old man strength kind of guy, if you know what I mean. And uh, he, was, he was scared to death. And from my perspective, he didn't have a framework for suffering. Didn't have a category for it. He, he, he was trying to rationalize it as we were talking. And, and, and he, you know, he said... You know, what are we going to do? We just, just got to keep on keeping on, you know? And I, I could tell he didn't mean it. I knew he was at the end. His family was at the end. And he went on to say, well, there's huge advancements in medicine, you know. But surely they'll come out with something that will take this away. And I agreed, and, and there probably will be huge advancements. And then he got down to, you know, it's this genetic thing. It's actually my fault. I, I had this thing I didn't even know, this chromosome or whatever, and you could just see him going a level down, a level down, and a level down, and a level down. And my heart, it just really aches for him because he's trying to make sense of something that it's really hard to make sense of unless you know Jesus. It revealed something about him I didn't know before. On the other hand, I have another set of friends that um, about a little over a month ago, uh, <clears throat> they... They were pregnant with their second child and, and ended up having a, a stillborn child. <laughs> and um, it was just absolutely heartbreaking experience to, to watch them deliver a child that has no life in it. And um, I, I got on the phone with him after a couple weeks after this had happened, and he began quoting, uh, within the first couple minutes, James chapter 1 to me. Count it joy when you face trials of various kinds. You know, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that we may be incomplete, lacking nothing. And he began to quote it and tell the story of how he'd seen God through the church and with his family over and over again. It revealed something about this man that I didn't know before. didn't know how deep he was. Now, Jeremiah 17 tells us a similar story. Megan read this. I'll read it again for us. The trials and the suffering that we will experience reveal the type of people that we are and the type of foundation that we have. And, and for, some of, for some of you, you're terrified to experience that. But we, we think, okay, what, what, if, what if today was my last day? What would that reveal about my life and my, my character? Or some of you, your, your brightest moments ahead of you where you're going to do the most impact for the kingdom of God are going to be revealed through something that you go through. And, and it's, it's this beautiful thing. Here's what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17. He says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. So, so that means this. The, the man is, is like a cursed man who, who's trying to make sense of the suffering in his flesh. Because he's cutting it short. He's, 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 he's not understanding what the Lord's doing. He's, he's, he's looking 
for diagnosis and, and, and doctors as good as they are and, and, and situations and circumstances to make sense of what he is going through and he will not find it. And that's revealed like a shrub in the desert. A drought comes on and that, that shrub dies. It has no life and it looks lifeless. But then there's this other way to live, Jeremiah says. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. So he doesn't just trust in the Lord like the circumstances that the Lord draws up for us. But it's, but it's different. It's different because his trust is the Lord. His trust is based on the relationship, not the circumstance. He says this man's blessed. Because this, this circumstance, this drought, this trial, this storm, whatever it would be in your life, reveals something about this man that you would not know otherwise. Verse 8 says this, he's like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. And here's the thing, it doesn't fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green. Its life remains intact, even though the circumstances around are devastating. He says he's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So we can look at that from an individual perspective and say, okay, ah, I got it. Okay, if I can just stand fast, have steadfast love for God in the middle of trial, no matter what it is, then, then that'll be great for me and my family. No, it even takes it a step further for us, Jeremiah does. He says, you'll be able to give life to others. You'll be like a tree that bears fruit for others to enjoy. Church, sometimes your suffering is more about those that are around you than it is you and your sanctification. For other people to get a window into the life of a person who knows God intimately through, through your suffering. Produces fruit for others to enjoy and to see. Now, Paul Tripp has described steadfastness in a great way. I'm just going to steal it from him. Uh, he says it, it's twofold. It's like this. It's, it's, steadfastness is about a firm purpose and having a fixed direction. Let me say that again. Steadfastness, firm purpose, fixed direction. So firm purpose, it's, it's this clarity that we can only have through the pressure and the trials that, that life puts us through. So, so suffering has a way of showing us what actually matters in the grand scheme of life, right? Think about a season that you went through, the loss of a loved one, devastating trial that you've been through. In those moments, you have more clarity, right? The idolatry seems to cease a little bit more in those moments because under the pressure of the trial, you get clarity on purpose in life. Think about a, a, a metallurgist. You know, this is the type of scientist that uh, helps us understand how rare materials are discovered and utilized for more. So most metals actually do not look appealing when they first come out of the core of the earth. I don't know if you know this or not. I mean, so, you know, when I proposed to Megan, and today's our 12th anniversary, by the way, so that's it's fun. It's great. Yeah. yeah. When, when I proposed to her, I didn't, uh, <laughs> I didn't go to the, the jeweler and say, hey, can you give me a piece of ore on a, on a ring? That'd be great. And, I, you know, and, you know, it's real, val I know, honey, I know it doesn't look great, but it's super valuable, I promise. There's no telling what's underneath that ore, right? I mean, just beauty is in the eye of the beholder. No, that's not what I did. Instead, I went and got something that had been mined out of ore, right? And the way that it works, I, th I think, from what I understand, is that they heat the ore up to these extreme temperatures. And in those extreme temperatures, the, the impurities are kind of melted away and they're skimmed off the top. 
and, 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 and then what, what is left is, are these rare precious metals that can only be discovered through, the, through the, 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 the trial and the pain and the testing of extreme heat and pressure. It's the same with diamonds, right? The only way you get the beauty is through the stress, is through the trial, it's through the pain, it's through the, the depth of what it takes. Now, you know, James says that blessed is the man who stands, you know, firm in the testing. Now, testing, when we think about testing, you know, I'm not talking about like standardized testing. That's not what he's saying here. Instead, he's saying that the testing uh, is, is, much more, is, is much more like an, an engineer that would test the strength of a bridge that's been built. And they do that through stressing it and seeing what its capacity actually is. And that's what testing does in our own lives. And this is the type of faith that the Lord Jesus Christ wants to build inside of you. This full and final faith that can't be gotten any other way. There's no amount of books you can read. There's uh, no amount of retreats you can attend. No amount of songs that you can sing. It comes through the laboratory of life and experiencing God's goodness in the middle of the stress and the trial and the suffering. The second thing that, 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 that Paul Tripp says that, you know, you define steadfastness as firm purpose is one, so kind of a drilling down, so to speak. And the second one is a fixed direction. So steadfastness as a fixed direction, it has this component that's, that's drawn to hope. Now, if you read about suffering in the Bible, uh, almost anywhere, I looked look through the scriptures this week, Almost everywhere that suffering is talked about, it's linked up with hope for believers. It's linked up with eternity for believers. That's because God has intended to give us this vision of what is to come to empower and strengthen us in the middle of today. Yet so many times we think that today is all that there is by the way that we live. But when you see what's coming, you see what's ahead, you see God's plan and his faithfulness in your life, you're willing to endure today because you know he's going to produce something inside of you that you could not have in any other way. Now, here, but here's a temptation for us all. We get in challenging situations. Maybe it's a, a relational strain. Like you're, It's just easy to hit the eject button and you know, give them the dots on the iPhone or, you know, <laughs> Or just cut them out of your life. It's so much easier to do that. Just go to another set of relationships over here. Or it's, it's so much easier to just switch jobs when it gets tough. So much easier to just leave that church when somebody ticks you off. The, the problem with people that approach life like this is they are missing out on something that they will never be able to get unless they face the music. And you know what that is? Maturity. Maturity. You only mature in Christ through those types of experiences. And that's what Jesus has for us. He wants to complete our faith, to bring us to completion. And for us, this will be this gradual kind of sanctification process that he'll do this in. Now lastly, so, so God sees us. He sees our imperfection, number one. God completes us, number two, through suffering. And number three, we respond. We respond. We count suffering as joy because we gain the most valuable thing in the world, a complete faith. Let me read it all together for you now. James 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it. Count it joy. Now, so this is, in the Greek, this, this is a, a, a verb that is in the imperative mood. So basically what that means is, is that there is an effort uh, implied on our behalf that God will give us the grace to apply, that, that we have to pursue it that way. We have to have a change of mind. There's something that we have to do, a responsibility that we have. And so the change of mind that God wants to give us in the face of suffering is that we are now, because we've seen that we're imperfect and he wants to perfect us, and that, uh, that the only way he can do that is through trial and suffering, now we're able to look at the circumstances differently because we understand that they are necessary. And because they are necessary, we understand that God is showing us his kindness as we experience things that we would never want to experience. That it is a way that God shows us what we need when we don't know what we need. And so rather than, than uh, running from those things, we embrace them when they meet us. Count it as joy. Count, change, change your mind to count it as joy. Now, a lot of times when we think of joy, we think about like this happy, clappy like attitude, you know, like, like, woo, I'm suffering, you know, like, that's not what he's talking about here. T- to count something as joy is to, to look at your circumstances and, and to choose not to be negative, not to gossip, not to slander in the midst of it, but to trust, as Jeremiah 17 says. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. To say, God, I know you're the captain of this ship. I don't know where it's going, how we're going to get there, how long it's going to last, but you're in the middle of this with me. You're in the middle of this pain with me. This is why in Isaiah 53, the scriptures prophesy about the person the work of Jesus, and they say he, he's, a, he's a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. My Hebrew professor uh, in seminary was talking about how the Jewish people, uh, he went to a Jewish uh, seminary for his doctorate and, um, and basically, or school for his doctorate, and, and they actually, they were going through the book of Isaiah and they just skipped over Isaiah 53 altogether because it is so much about Jesus. But the Jews didn't want Jesus to be weak and sorrowful and acquainted with grief. That, that, that couldn't be who their king could be. He needed to show his power. But your king, King Jesus, is acquainted with sorrow and grief and pain. Because he knows that that's how we change and that's how he's changed the world by experiencing that for us. And so we approach it differently. Not as those who don't have hope, but as those who have hope. Jesus wants to give you the most valuable thing in the world through your faith in these circumstances to make you durable, robust, and tested. And we, we've said at New City, when, when you suffer something, when you, when you go through a trial, an unspeakable moment, and all of your friends want to give you advice like Job's friends did, you know, the really bad, trite advice like curse God and die, that kind of stuff, you know, they, 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 they want to kind of empathize with you in that way. That's not what you need to hear. What you would rather have is someone who's walked with, through you with that season, walked through a season like that with you, and and they just say, you know what, I don't understand what God's doing, but I know he's in the middle of it. That's far more comforting to me when I go through those times of trial. 1 Peter 4.12 describes uh, our experience often. He says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange we're happening to you. Like, where in the world did this thing come from, you know? What, what's happening? Why am I experiencing persecution? Why am I experiencing illness? 
Why is my life falling apart? Why is my marriage a struggle? Why don't I have these unresolved conflicts in my life? Why? He says, don't be surprised by these things. But so many times it catches us off guard because we don't have a theology that has a framework for suffering. Yet it is the ordinary means of God changing us. So, New City, as I close here, what would it look like for us as a church to be the type of community that we're almost like first responders of suffering in New City and with outside a New City around our community? You know, like firefighters, right? Firefighters, like everybody else is running out of the building, they're running in kind of a thing. Grieving and suffering and trial is messy, right? It's like, did I say it wrong? I don't know. Uh, maybe I'll just, I just won't talk to them at all. That'll be helpful, right? That, that's the way we approach it a lot of times. But what would it look like for us to have a, a, a shift in our frame of thinking to say we're going to walk toward this instead of away from this? We know that they're in an awkward place. They don't understand what's going on. We're going to move toward it. And, yeah, we might not say everything right, but we're going to be present, and likewise, you, when you suffer, when you go through trial, you, you have to have the faith to let other people into the struggle with you, right? In our American westernized culture, the best thing we do is isolate, and somehow we think we'll find hope in that. What's it look like for you to let Jesus into that? He says, count it as joy. So this, you know, he says count it as joy because joy is contagious, right? It's not only for your good, but for the good of your community. I, I was, uh, had the opportunity to go uh, visit with one of our members here at New City that is in a, in a difficult season of life and is incarcerated right now. And as, uh, as I was talking to her this week, um, I just caught something different about her. That she had this, um, her words, joy, that was just extraordinary, right? I mean, you look at the circumstances, you're talking through a glass. She had this joy, and, and she began to describe that on her unit, that that's, they would make fun of her because she had joy. And she, she said to me, she said, the people in my unit don't understand how I can have joy right now. You know, I, I don't know what the next season's going to like, how long I'm going to be in here. She says, for me, my, my joy doesn't come from these circumstances. It comes from Jesus. And, and she said this, something so beautiful. She said, I know I'm changing. I know that God is changing me. I know that this might be the best place for me right now, honestly. And she says, that gives me hope. I got myself into this, but Jesus found me in here. She has joy. So church, what do you say? What's it look like for us to have joy and embrace it and walk together through it? Let's pray. Father, I just give you thanks for, um, for how you've met me personally, just uh, in times of, of trial as we experience just the imperfections of this world in our own lives. And now you have such a commitment to us through trial and suffering. Lord, I pray for those in this room right now um, that are just in deep pain right now. They don't feel known by you. They can't see your goodness. God, I pray that you would supply the gift of faith to them right now. The gift of faith that says, I'm going to trust the captain of the storm instead of the storm for my salvation, for my security. As Charles Spurgeon once says, he had hope because he knew that the storm had a bit in its mouth. Lord, that's the same that is true of our suffering, of our temptations and trials, is that these storms have a bit in their mouth. 
They are controlled by you. And so, Lord, as we suffer this week, this year, this month, this life, would you give us faith to see that the work you want to do in us cannot be done in any other way? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.